Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. I'm really so pleased to be joined today uh, by Allison Smith and Moore Quinn, who are the, the editors, the volume editors for Women in Pilgrimage, which has been published by Cabby. Uh, we're going to start our recording today with a statement uh, by Moore, uh, and I'll leave that to you, Moore, to go ahead and launch us. Thank you. I'm most pleased and proud to be here as well, Heather, and thank you so much for inviting us to talk about our important work, Women and Pilgrimage. However, I'd like to begin by reading a statement about the Penacook bands that lived in the areas upon which I am residing at the moment. They are the Agawam, the Nashua, the Namkeg, the Pawtucket, the Wachusett, the Washakam, and others. They are also called the Pawtucket and Merrimack tribes, and they lived in northeastern Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire. The Penacook were primarily fishermen, farmers, hunters, and gatherers. At first, they lived in birch bark wigwams, and eventually began building fortified villages in longhouses due, in, due to an increase in tribal warfare. However, in, from 1616 to 1619, the Penacook were hit hard by an epidemic, possibly smallpox, which greatly reduced their numbers. So I want to honor them today and tell you that I reside on their lands. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I also reside on their land, so I appreciate that you have uh, acknowledged this during this recording. I'd like to start uh, our conversation by orienting uh, our listeners to a statement that you made um, in the introductory chapter of the book, uh, in which you say that the collection of essays attempts to take a giant leap forward, pun intended, in terms of broadening what we know about women on the road and the multiple ways they attempt to move through lands not their own. I think this is a very poignant statement to draw us in. Uh, I, I was actually uh, struck by the paradox in some ways of being on the road versus being at home, uh, which is where women are uh, traditionally um, uh, positioned um, historically, socially, structurally. And so I, I, I was also a bit struck by how women may also bring home to the road. And I saw this um, in, in, in this volume. And so I'd like to start uh, by, by, I guess, putting, putting this idea out there about, about the, the volume, speaking to the lives, the experiences, uh, that women have while on the road, but also while being at home and providing home for others while they're on the road. Well, I'll take that. I'll get, get us started. Thank you so much for that question. It's, it's been one of my discoveries in a way in looking at all of these different types of pilgrim women to learn that just as you say, they were caregivers, care makers, all along the journey, not only for themselves, but especially for the women that traveled with them, the children, and oftentimes the men as well. So you're absolutely right that women took their homes with them, even to lands that were not their own. I also found it fascinating as I was doing the research for my own chapter to understand that women did a lot of different types of labor on the road. They were apprentices, they were midwives, they cleaned mon monastic dwellings, they got food and provided other types of services. All that we might uh, suggest are part of women's domestic jobs or work, work 
duties while they are in their own compounds. So it isn't as if they left themselves behind, rather they took themselves with them. Allison, I don't know if you had additional thoughts uh, about this uh, bringing home on the road, or if you would like me to jump into uh, what will be probably a series of never ending questions. I, one of the great, great privileges and honors um, in for me in doing this podcast is that I have the opportunity to reconnect with scholars that I've either known from afar or up close uh, and read the, the, the work, the thoughts. And this volume is is significant, um, both in, in the topics that are covered, but also in the caliber of scholars who have contributed. And it was really heartwarming for me to see a number of people that I have known, you know, over the course of a decade and some new names, uh, some that I didn't realize that our paths had crossed previously. And, and, and now I'm being able to be brought into their the, the thinking and their contributions um, in this volume. Um, I'd like to hear uh, a bit more about what inspired this volume. Why? Uh, you know, we, we spend time often at pilgrimage conferences, pilgrimage studies conferences and, and other tourism and travel conferences, uh, kind of giving a nod to women travelers and women pilgrims. Um, and it seems that this, this volume should have, I put quotes, should have been written um, mm -hmm. earlier than this, and, and it wasn't, and, and you two led the way in, in bringing it um, into kind of manifesting th this, this volume. What led to the volume at this point in time? Why now? Well, thank you, Heather. I feel like this volume actually is a natural outgrowth of the work that Moore and I have been doing over the past few decades. Um, Moore and I know each other through our work at the College of Charleston with the Women's and Gender Studies program. That's actually where our, our um, collaboration and our friendship was solidified uh, when we were both on the executive committee. And um, over the years, as we've discussed our um, many different aspects of our scholarship, uh, both formally and informally. It, it's just our everything that we do is informed by our, our work with feminism and the intersectional nature of our feminist scholarship definitely um, is what brought us to this point. More, more may have some other thoughts on that. Well, I'll just chime in and add to, by saying that it was a few years ago at the William and Mary Symposium on Pilgrimage, uh, put a plug in for George Greenia, who has been so powerful in spearheading that effort, that Allison and I began to talk about what was missing in terms of a program or a panel or a conference itself on women in pilgrimage. And I think it was Allison who said, more, why don't we do a book? But I have heard Allison say that I'm the one who said it. So it might have been one of those inspirational moments where both of us understood the gap was there and it needed to be filled and that we, as two women who knew members of the pilgrimage community, could gather up some scholars and put it out. So that, that's pretty much the backstory of it, Heather. When you were envisioning this volume, uh, who were you? Who were you thinking would be the audience for it, and what type of impact were you hoping uh, that the volume would make? Well, I, I believe that this. Bill Hooks famously said, "Feminism is for everyone. <laughs> Feminism mm -hmm. is for everybody," and that's that's what I feel. Volume is for everyone who's interested in pilgrimage, interested in feminism. Um, so I, I hope that our book will be broadly read. At that conference, Heather, we had scholars right there in our midst that we could tap. And there's nothing like buttonholing. And you know what that's like at a conference where we grabbed a hold of Sharenda Bilar and uh, Susan Dunn-Hensley, Mary Jane Dunn was also there. And they were practically, if not firmly committed at that time. They were saying, yes, sure, you put this, put the call for papers out and we will 
uh, we will consider it. I think Alice and I, and I drew from two different realms of scholars. I was interested in Irish pilgrimage. I could draw from a cohort from that realm. And Alison, of course, could draw from her feminist friends as well. So then when, once we put the call for papers out, we had other others who wanted to come on board. Many of them stayed with us through the end, which was so fortunate. But because we faced the COVID-19 restrictions and how much they affected women, I must add, we lost a few. But on the other hand, we we kept many more than we lost. So that, that was what we, we began to think about. Uh, you asked about the envision that we had, that we brought to the initial work. And I would have to say, first of all, there were gaps in the literature, uh, the awareness of women pilgrims in general, but the idea that women have been overlooked in so many conversations, and this is just another one. We also wanted to provide room for more women's voices. Uh, for example, Shirley Duploy's chapter on the prophetess Mansopa and what her, the silence of her voice and her landscape meant. And then thirdly, I think the book upends the myth that women don't go on pilgrimage. <laughs> that one really struck out to me, both at the pilgrims conferences that we were attending, as well as recognizing that although there are pockets of women's scholarship on medieval pilgrims, for example, and even ancient pilgrim women, they hadn't been pulled together in any comprehensive whole. So we strived for holism. We tried to look at the historical, the political, the economic, the cultural, the artistic, the social, uh, sounds like a laundry list, but it's also it also includes the theoretical. And each one of those has its impetus that deals with women specifically. The pilgrims historically, for example, Mansopa, but Allison's chapter on the political nature of women pilgrim struggle. My chapter on the economic realities of women who go off to care for families. The cultural in terms of, for example, uh, uh, Vivian Keeley's chapter that takes us to the realms of her own childhood. And she ex explains to us through an interview with an informant or a consultant that she wanted to do a pilgrimage that she had been doing since she was a little girl. The artistic explodes in, um, in Emma Rochester's chapter, where she gives us Claire Cowie's image of a frame that says a walk can be a dangerous thing, and all women know that, but also the sister chapel, which is the send up, you might say, to the Sistine Chapel, where no women are represented. And we find out that Elise Greenstein, who had that idea of the sister chapel, her whole installation ended up in a dump at a flea market until it was rescued and restored and it's now housed in a museum in New Jersey. So I think what we're seeing here is that the holistic nature of our project has been carried through and even beyond into the theoretical, where I will just add, we go from early theoretical perspectives, going back to Victor Turner and some other early people, all the way to Tim Cresswell and the women that he is working with in terms of new mobilities. So that's what we strived for as we conceived the project. I, I noticed the absence uh, and maybe these women uh, were, or these that the, uh, were going to be contributors and could not, but I did notice the absence of Muslim women's voices. And I'm curious um, if, if that, was what what was the thinking around that or was there just simply uh not someone who could contribute in that area well i, I can start on that and then more will um add some more I, it, basically we put out a call for papers and we did deal with the ones that we received and and we did not receive any papers from uh um, anyone of the muslim faith um, any abstracts that is. 
Um, we did have a broader range of diversity of faiths represented, but as more previously mentioned, COVID um, interfered and some of the people on board were not able to do their research for various reasons, either personal or not able to um, go to the sites they had intended to visit. Uh, we do envision that our work is not done um, here. We're, we're really just beginning and there's certainly room for a lot more work. Um, so we're hoping that this is just a launching point and that we will move forward and be even more inclusive uh, in the future, whether we're the ones to take up the mantle or, or others. We hope that everyone will take up that mantle and will explore um, the dimensions that were not explored in our volume. I, I do hope so too. I've always uh, been particularly drawn to the, the experiences of Muslim women, particularly those who are uh, participating in the Hajj um, mm -hmm. in, in the sense that there seems to be an egalitarian platform there that I've wondered yeah. what's next, where can this go beyond the pilgrimage? And so it's been, I, I've had my, uh, I've been attuned to any publications that are are, are coming out from about the uh, the experiences of, of Muslim women because I think there uh, there is so much possibility there um, in in many ways. Um, I, in, interestingly, um, Allison, you talk about in your chapter um, in feminizing the Camino, reimagining uh, pilgrimage for inclusivity. You address the issue of safety. And, and I'd like to kind of touch on this a bit, even though I, I did not send you um, any, any questions ahead of time. So I'm sort of catching you here, but, but I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts about, about safety um, that, that you wrote about in very specifically on the Camino, very specifically in, in the communities that you talked about. And what does this mean um, sort of generally for women who are, um, who are going on pilgrimages? I don't hear this talked very much, uh, talked about very much, um, and I and I wonder why that is. I have thoughts about why that is, but I'd also like to hear your thoughts um, after doing the research for this chapter. Thank you. I mean, for one thing, I think that uh, when one goes on pilgrimage, one has the highest of hopes, and that your expectations are that the pilgrimage is going to be successful and that things are going to go wonderfully well. And, and we do talk about the Camino and the, the Camino spirit. And um, it, it's unfortunate that not everyone uh, has that wonderful experience, even though most do. Um, our book is dedicated to Leslie Harmon. She was a huge advocate for female solo walkers. And I, I, I don't want my chapter at all to discourage anyone from thinking that they should be a solo walker. I, I look to Leslie for inspiration and um, think that you know, women should be walking the Camino alone and should not be afraid. Um, however, the, the experience for women who embark solo is different than that of men. Um, men are perceived as being independent and brave. Women are perceived as being foolhardy and um, bringing negative things upon themselves by embarking um, alone. Uh, I hope that my chapter will raise awareness about issues as Leslie did. I remember when she mentioned at the Sacred Journeys Conference in 2015 that an American woman was missing on the Camino. It was before we learned that she had been murdered. And um, Leslie spoke then that she did not want this to deter women, that she had been a big advocate, but that we needed to pray for her safety and also to watch out for one another. And so that that's really um, kind of where I, I'm hoping that our chapter, my chapter will take us is that um, we'll be more aware, but not be afraid, and that we'll look out for each other and, and just be um, conscious of this. I have had um, a really great response to my chapter. A lot of women who have come up to me who maybe weren't victims of anything sinister, but who perhaps were stalked or perhaps were eyed in a certain way that made them feel uncomfortable. And they felt that having someone speak to this gives them the ability 
to talk about it and to talk about it in ways that don't detract from their experience as pilgrims. Um, so it's, I feel this is an important thing to, for us to address. It, it is important and it's interesting, I think, um, on one hand, uh, uh, promoting the stories, the narratives, the experiences of women, that may include something that that is we don't want to hear. It does not invalidate the experiences of, of, of pilgrims, uh, period. I, I remember a, a time a couple of years ago, there uh, was a, a series of articles about sexual assault um, on the Hajj, and I posted this on social media, and I lost a lot of followers, and people were emailing me um, very upset that I had just posted an article about this. And, and I, it's interesting and it, it, it's bigger than what we have time to address here. Uh, but I do think that there's, there's something very sensitive about addressing safety issues with female pilgrims um, because it almost reinforces this idea that female pilgrims are foolhardy. So it, uh, it, it's much bigger conversation um, than what we have time to talk about. Um, and I think that it warrants further exploration in depth, uh, probably um, many volumes beyond um, where we are right now. Um, I wanna point out uh, for listeners that may not know this, uh, both of you are veteran Camino pilgrims and, I, and you've been uh, going on the Camino for a number of years, probably a couple decades uh, and I'm, and, and I'd like to just highlight that, that you are pilgrims in addition to pilgrimage studies scholars or pilgrimage scholars. And is, is there anything you can offer about how your own personal experiences have shaped your scholarship? How do you, uh, I mean, we're in an interesting area where, where we are pilgrims and scholars and kind of participant observers and detached while also being very much embedded in the community. Uh, of pilgrims, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about that and, and what that has meant for your work. Allison, you, you'd be better off for speaking about that, being more of a Camino scholar than myself. Well, and but I do want to draw you in more in terms of our experience taking students abroad and taking them on walks. And um, so a lot of Moore's experiences in Ireland, and I had the great fortune to walk part of the Kerry Camino in Ireland a few years ago with two of our co-authors, with uh, Sharonda Barler and Susan Dunn-Hensley. Um, but all of us uh, who are professors, a lot of our work is, it, it, we, we want to share our academic work, but we also want to share our personal experiences as pilgrims on walks. And so I've had the great pleasure of accompanying Lisa Signori on two of her walks. Um, she's a co-author in our book and she's taken students on the Camino uh, several times. I was fortunate to accompany her twice. And it, it's just such a marvelous, um, mode of pedagogy to be able to live the life, live the pilgrim life with your students and share uh, the waking and the discovery um, each moment. Uh, I, I also have planned micro pilgrimages for my students in France when I've taken them on uh, study abroad. And it, it's really just, I, I guess, being a pilgrim it, it, and being a teacher, you just want to share uh, so much the the richness of that experience. So I've been able to do it in France and in Spain, and and Maura has been able to do this in Ireland with her students. And perhaps she can share a little bit about that too. That's right, Allison. Uh, we can't forget our teacher scholar roles, especially when we're on the pilgrimage trails. My latest experience, Heather. You might really be interested in this because. I, I was asked to embody myself as a male, a father and a husband. His name was James Quinn, which of course is my surname as well. And in 1847, he walked with his family on a forced march basically from the middle of Ireland in County Roscommon 
to the docks of Dublin where he was put onto a quote unquote coffin ship and escorted across the water to Canada. So when I began the solo walk in October of last year, I was given his passport and I was told, as you walk, become him. Think of what he might have seen and felt and experienced. And I must say that that was a different type of embodiment than just thinking of myself as more Quinn soloing on this 165 kilometer path. So I think that one of the things we ask is what is so different about women pilgrims from pilgrims in general? And the answer is there's so much overlap. We get tired, we get hungry, we get blisters, we wear the incorrect clothing, we have too much weight. All of those things are shared by, by pilgrims of any gendered persuasion. However, added to, as I think Allison's chapter discusses, women have something else. And that is something we've already discussed. And that is the caregiving role for themselves and others. And I believe that bodily, they also have something else. They have to deal with pregnancy and they have to deal with menstruation and they have to deal with feminine issues or women's oriented issues that perhaps other pilgrims don't have to deal with. And those shape, if not color, their own experiences in a different way. So this is what we're bringing to the volume. We're exploring some of these issues. We have not delved deeply into all of them, but we are on the path of doing more which leads me back to your issue about women who are Muslims on the road. And I'd just like to emphasize that there's a new book, relatively new, called Muslim Women's Pilgrimage to Mecca and Beyond, Configuring Gender, Religion, and Mobility. And that's part of this mobility's turn. In 2021, it was published by Marjo Buitilar, I hope I'm saying the name correctly, Stefan Emmerich, Manja Stefan Emmerich, and Viola Thim. So that's a book to keep our eyes open for, because just as I'm exploring some of the issues that affect women, European or Western women, I'm sure that volume contains so much more that we can add. Thank you for mentioning uh, this volume. I, I, this is the first I'm hearing of it. So I really appreciate you uh, bringing it to our attention. Um, I've got a question for both of you, considering, I mean, in light of the fact that the volume is women in pilgrimage, I've had a number of people uh, outside of pilgrimage studies who have been, who I've had conversations with about my work and about, about the field of pilgrimage studies ask me, is pilgrimage inherently uh, feminine? It is, is the, the, the practice, the concept, the actions that make up pilgrimage, um, is there something, is, it, is there a gender component from the beginning and is this gender component inherently feminine? Well, I'll just launch right in by talking about Sarah Owens's chapter on a widow who by donning the male robes of a pilgrim and walking out the front door, decided that she was no longer going to be shackled by a role or a essence that perhaps the culture had inscribed upon her. In that chapter, Sarah Owens talks about liminal experience. And I'm sure if you have pilgrim listeners, they know what that's like. It's the betwixt and between. You're not one thing or another. You're, for example, on the seashore or on the mountaintop, or it's dawn or it's dusk. All those temporal and spatial realities specify the liminal, the neither here nor there. And so when you ask if, if the pilgrimage journey itself is specifically feminine, well, I would say it's specifically liminal in the sense that when you're vulnerable, you're liminal. And it doesn't matter what specific gender you are, you're in the realm of something new and different that is beyond what a categorical 
description of you at home might have said you were or said you are. Right, I'll just uh, follow up a little bit on that. I believe that um, one brings one's own gendered experience to one's personal pilgrimage practice. And I, th I think in the past, historically, more men than women went on pilgrimage. And now that it, on the Camino, at least, that uh, balance has been met and is in fact, you know, there are more women embarking now. Um, so, so I don't think there's anything we can say about pilgrimage that's inherently gendered um, as more so correctly expressed as liminal. We're, we're beyond that in a sense. And yet one brings one's own gender to the, the practice. Um, I, what I'm interested in seeing in the future is how more um, members of the LGBT community address pilgrimage and specifically trans uh, pilgrims. I would, I would be really curious to see um, a volume of the experience of a transgender pilgrim. Um, I have not seen such a volume yet, but hopefully in the future there's room for that and we'll, we'll eagerly look forward to those narratives. I actually uh, supervised uh, a research study with a couple of students uh, where we were looking at exactly this, pilgrimages that were undertaken during um, uh, the, the coming out or coming in experience. Um, and we interviewed um, several uh, trans individuals about what it was about their pilgrimage experiences as, and, and how they impacted the identity. It's quite substantial, actually. Uh, many times, for for people who are um, who are uh, encountering the world in a new way and and bringing on a new identity or or finding congruence in the inner and outer identity, the pilgrimage is the first time where that identity is tried on um, outside of the self or outside of a, few, a yes, very small group of people. Um, and so the, the pilgrimages um, in, 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 the, in the lives of the people that we interviewed weren't even necessarily that long. Maybe they were, I think one person went to San Francisco, a couple of people went to a pride festival and considered that as a pilgrimage. And so, but, but it was notable, um, this, this idea of approaching um, the, the wider world in a new way and then finding acceptance and validation um, is quite significant. So yes, I'm, I would like to see a volume focused on this as well. And if we could just uh, add to a bibliographical sense of where we're going in the future, I mentioned Tim Cresswell earlier, but also Tanu Priya Utang writes with him. They have a recent book that deals with the fragile senses of motion or the fragile senses of movement. And I think that's what we're talking about with LGBTQ or II question mark, right? Uh, the trans people, we're all somewhat fragile when we take step into the unknown, take that huge leap into the unknown. And that mobile politics has to be reckoned with in terms of power and regulation and who who can go, who is even allowed out the front door. So all of these things are being talked about in, in future scholarship and what's coming down the pike right now. It's, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm coming from a psychological background. And so this idea of identity congruence to me is so front and center for all pilgrims. I mean, there's this, there, the sort of the essence of identity is for me at the heart of pilgrimage, uh, where who one believes oneself to be, uh, and then that person uh, being on the outside externalized and then interacting with other pilgrims um, is really, really key, um, at least to the transformation part of transfer, I should say transformational part of, of pilgrimage. Um, is this issue of identity congruence. Not, not everyone has these experiences where their identity is sort of fused because of the pilgrimage. Many people return home and, and their lives are in shambles because uh, they realize that actually they're very different than, you know, the, the structure they left is very different than um, when they come back. And so um, there's certainly a lot of angst um, that, that can result, but for many people, this issue of congruence is front and center. Mm -hmm. 
What are some uh, examples? Uh, I know you. there are a number of chapters that mention specific pilgrims um, in your volume. Can you uh, give us some descriptions of notable pilgrims, uh, women pilgrims, uh, particularly those who may have written about their experiences um, that, that we can go learn more about, um, and then also talk about maybe why their experiences were different from their male counterparts. Well, I think that um, almost all of us pay homage to Egeria in, in the fourth century and Marjorie Kemp in the 14th and 15th century. Those are the well-known um, female pilgrims in the Christian tr tradition that people reference. Uh, specifically, Mary Jane Dunn's chapter deals with turn of the century, early 20th century pilgrims on the Camino. And, and she sheds some new light on names we've known before, um, but also names people are perhaps not familiar with. Um, uh, Georgiana Goddard King is a scholar and a pilgrim who wrote extensively about the Camino de Santiago, and people do know her name, but she's just now getting the recognition that she deserves. Uh, other authors that we perhaps uh, know of are um, Emilia Pardo Bazan, uh, Mary Jane talks about her writings and Edith Wharton, a lot of uh, people know her as an author, but aren't aware that she was also a pilgrim. Um, so those are some names that come forward in Mary Jane's chapters and she, a chapter, and she mentions some others as well. As more mentioned, um, Sarah Owens brings to light uh, the experiences of Sor Luisa de Jesus, who embarked as a widow on uh, on a pilgrimage um, on the Camino de Santiago, but ultimately did not make it all the way to Santiago because she stopped in Toledo and ended up uh, taking the veil and converting and then ultimately um, went to the Philippines. And so her story is quite fascinating. Um, Dr. Owens is just uncovering, uh, she does archival work and is, is uncovering that story for us. So that will be something that we can all look forward to hearing more about. Um, how their experiences are different from those of, of men. Um, if we're looking historically, the um, Mary Jane Dunn's chapter talks about transportation and how uh, new modes of transportation in the early 20th century gave greater access to women. Um, people were able to, before you left on pilgrimage from your home or wherever you lived, but once you could take a train and arrive in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port or somewhere a little closer that increased um, the access for all women, uh, for all people, not just women, but uh, certainly women um, of a certain class, uh, of the leisure class who are able to afford uh, transportation, it, it expanded their opportunities. Um, and and, and they're just, uh, there's so much more room for exploration uh, there as well. And just to add to that for you, Heather, we also want to think about historical literary women figures who are relatively well known in terms of pilgrimage scholarship. The wife of Bath and Chaucer's Canterbury Tales comes to mind immediately, but there's also Sigismunda in Cervantes' The, Tri the Trials of Priscilla's and Sigismunda, A Northern Story. And the one that uh, Sharenda Bilar focuses on is by Lopez de Obeda, La Picara Justina, am I saying that correctly? I hope so, coming close to it, in which she talks about the public and private spheres that women belong to. And here's where we come into our own time thinking about the ambivalence of public and private. These issues have been circulating in our own literature for some years now. We even have bumper stickers that some of our listeners might remember. Uh, I think I can quote it, good girls go to heaven, bad girls go everywhere. Uh, what does that mean and what is that about? And how can we believe that and then acknowledge the fact that those bad girls are not bad at all? This is a cultural or political or a powerful thing to say. The other thing that I think is important about the notion of authenticity that we are still confronting, and I think Allison touched on it in terms of if you take a train or a bike or a bus or a, 
uh, tour guide trip to the Camino de Santiago and you hop on and hop off and you finally get there, is that the same? Are you authentic? And this is a subject that goes all the way back to Pope Calixtine is talking about the difference between Romera, a real pilgrim, and Ramera, which was not a very nice word to apply to a woman who was on the road. She was maligned simply for being out there, considered a harlot at best and a whore at worst. And yet she was actualizing herself in this fictional account. And from what I understand, I haven't read the entire series of sections of the book, but I understand that this is a send up to the holier than thou at the time that Lopez was trying in some way or another to call out or make fun of or satirize those who were uh, somehow making the harlot out of the person who just decided to leave home and have some adventure, maybe get fed, <laughs> maybe get married. Uh, Hustina, I believe, marries four times, so. The, the volume is, is definitely a, I think a must, uh, a must read and a must uh, for pilgrimage studies classes. And, and I'm wondering if you've also had some receptivity for women's studies courses are, are, is this going the other way as well, where uh, feminist studies, women's studies, uh, courses, programs, um, are they now drawing in this pilgrimage lens into the curriculum? Well, I can speak to that initially, and then maybe Allison, you can add, we have already done that uh, at the College of Charleston. And I believe when Allison was at the Citadel, we invited George Greenia from William and Mary, who is the pilgrimage symposium creator, we invited him to come and give a perspective, a wide perspective on pilgrimage studies generally. He came to our classes, he gave public, more broadly oriented uh, lectures as well to our campuses. And that was only the start. So our book was released in March. So we're three months old, we're still in our infancy, but we are hoping that as we get the word out as more reviews of the book circulate, more uh, women's studies scholars and course creators will include the book or at least chapters in the book. Now, I, I'm actually developing a course, a freshman seminar, first year seminar um, for next semester that's called Travel for Transformation. It's being sponsored by Women's and Gender Studies, the Women's and Gender Studies program of the College of Charleston. And the reason for that sponsorship is, is not only because of the content uh, of the course, we'll be reading narratives by women travelers, um, we'll be reading parts of our book as well, um, but also because, as you mentioned before, Heather, the, the search for identity that is so key, and that's going to be one of the essential components of the course is how one can use transformative travel and pilgrimage as a tool for uncovering identity and for um, playing with different identities um, because you're in, in that liminal space uh, where the rules are, are different and, and you can um, try things out and, and see. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to um, encourage my students to explore their own identities as they're reading narratives by other authors who have done so. That just warms my heart to know that you are developing a course. I'm finally teaching a course related to, to pilgrimage and transformational travel and well-being. And I'm, it, it, it's wonderful to see that institutions are now starting to more broadly embrace these types of courses. Uh, because for so many of us, this has been nearly kind of a side hustle and something we do in addition to what the real job is. Um, and so I, I love it. I mean, it's really, it's really uh, heartwarming to know that 
um, little by little institutions are allowing us to have more flexibility and to bring this important topic. Um, I mean, because it, 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 this is so intersectional, isn't it? Pilgrimage is not a topic. I mean, I could really, and we probably all could make the case that the pilgrimage is related to everything that we study. And it really is um, encapsulate, encapsulates um social structures and power and economics and uh, religious cultural uh, differences and diversity. So that's wonderful. Uh, so where will you go next uh, in terms of the scholarship? This is, this is clearly a significant contribution to, to the field of pilgrimage studies, also to, to women's studies, also to just any type of study of travel and and the lived experiences of pilgrims and travelers. What's next? Are you taking your show on the road? I have to imagine <laughs> that, that this is this will this will provide some type of, of platform to be able to to speak further about your work uh, cumulatively as well as the, the chapter contributors um, in a way that is new and exciting. Well, well, we're not finished with this one yet. That's, that's, so, so we're still, we just had our book launch. I mean, this book is so recently out. We just had our book launch last month and um, we are looking forward to having all of our scholars together at several uh, conferences uh, that are forthcoming so that we'll be able to continue the conversation. In terms of our um, individual research separately, um, I, I know that our chapters are taking us in new directions. And so we'll continue individual scholarship and we'll continue collaborative scholarship but because as you said, uh, the nature of this is intersectional and it is, it is collaborative for sure. Um, in terms of the course that I'm teaching, I'm looking a little bit closer to home for some transformative travel experiences, primarily for logistics, because I can't, I hope to, to pay every single student on a pilgrimage. It's not economically available for all students. It's also environmentally um, destructive to be flying students around, you know, here and there for a week just to uh, have them have an experience. So we'll be looking closer to home and I'm going to have the students um, based on our readings uncover their own transformative pilgrimage experiences. They will be building their own and hopefully um, I will learn from them in the process and, and they'll be able to interact with the other authors from this volume, uh, many of whom are here in the Charleston area and many of whom will visit the Charleston area. So um, I'm sure more has more to say about this as well. Well, absolutely. We'd like to take the show on the road, Heather. I love that idea. Thank you. We'll have a big bus and it'll say women in pilgrimage across the side and we'll charge across America. We'll walk and we'll meet and we'll sing and we'll dance and we'll incorporate the holistic perspective of pilgrimage. That would be a dream. But more specifically, I have just booked a flight and a week in Butte, Montana because part of my research in Ireland has to do with a series of copper mines that were operative in the mid 19th century. And when the copper ran out, those people became trice migrants in the sense that they left County Cork, they went to Boston, and then they went to Butte, Montana. So that was a triple pilgrimage, you might say, how they ever got to the Butte mines in the first place would be the first step of the journey. So I expect that I will be able to take students again to the Cork Copper Mines. We've toured, toured there three times already before the virus interfered with uh, study abroad, but we're planning on 2023 again. And then a long range goal would be to see what happened when those quote unquote migrant pilgrims ended up in Butte, Montana and maybe a domestic study abroad could happen as well. So that's specifically for me what I have cooking in the next year or two. But to broaden it out more, Heather, I'd like to draw the listener's attention to the fact that we as humans move. And as we move, we learn, we change, we grow. That's what we do as organisms. And I think that 
in the past, pilgrimage has been more narrowly focused on sites as opposed to the participants' movements. And this is something I have argued in a, in a few publications already, one entitled, What is Pilgrimage?, where I make the point that humans move. And I think if we get into that larger perspective going forward, we would begin to see many, many aspects of our lives as many pilgrimages, and we would begin to interrogate what those things mean for us. Uh, thank you for, for helping us dream about what the show on the road would look like. <laughs> um, I, interestingly, I have a cookbook that my grandfather gave me from Butte, Montana. He gave it to me 30 years ago. It's about, and there are Irish uh, recipes because of the immigrant population in Butte. So I'll have to touch base with you after this because maybe this will be some something interesting. Uh, yeah, so anyway, it's a collection of, of uh, recipes from Butte and from all of the uh, immigrants who lived there um, and contributed to this very interesting multicultural community. Um, I'd like to, to end the recording today. I, the, there's a quote um, that is also in the intro chapter that really, um, I, I, I just love it. Um, and I think, so I, if, I, if I could just read directly from the, from the, the intro, I'd love to do that. Uh, For in spite of the odds of being represented unfavorably, women of many ages and persuasions, saints and sinners, commoners and queens, artists and festival goers, and even rascal pilgrims and migrant workers found it in their purview to hit the road. The contents of this volume seek to answer specific questions as to who some of those women were and where they went, what they thought of others who did the same, and perhaps most importantly, why they left the confines of their dwellings for pilgrimage purposes. I hope you all listening will check out this volume. Uh, again, it's called Women in Pilgrimage and it is published by Cabby uh, in, in the UK, right? It's the, the, the office in the UK. Thank you, Allison and more so much for, for being here today and best of luck with all of the exciting endeavors that you are embarking on and for bringing us this volume and, and pulling together the scholarship um, of so many wonderful uh, contributors um, from, from different places around the world. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Heather. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.